Uh, and a special thanks to Dan and David and everyone behind the scenes at St. Mary's. Um, it is so good to be together again in person. Um, so thank you for all for coming and for being here. Uh, I also want to just say a word of thanks to my wife, Lori, who, who's joining me. I was so delighted that she could come. And uh, Father Bill McNichols. Um, when I published my first book on Merton and Sophia, it was 2009. Some months later, um, I got a letter in the mail and uh, from somebody I didn't know, didn't know about, and it turned out to be Father Bill, a letter from Father Bill thanking me for the book um, and, and confessing that he didn't like Merton <laughs> uh, until, he, until he read my book and saw a side of Merton that he, didn't, he wasn't aware of. Um, and so uh, that began a relationship and a friendship that has lasted to this day, a very deeply important one to, to me and to my whole family. And I'm so glad that, Bill, that you could be here with us today. So thank you. Bill, uh, more than anybody but Merton, I would say, has taught me about this tradition that was so kind of strange to my ears as a Western Catholic uh, until I came upon her in the writings of Merton. And uh, whenever we talk about her, Bill and I, we end up falling short of words. It's uh, not easy to talk about her, as I'll, as I'll mention, um, to pin her down. She won't, she won't be pinned down to our traditional theological categories. And that's one of her gifts, I think. Some 200 years before the birth of Christ, an elder sage from Jerusalem named Jesus Ben Sirah wrote of his lifelong yearning or wisdom, Sophia. And so I begin with a kind of prayer in the words of Ben Sirach, here taken from the book of Sirach. When I was a youth, before I went traveling, in my prayers, I asked for wisdom. Outside the sanctuary, I would pray for her, and to the last, I shall continue to search for her. From her blossoming to the ripening grape, my heart has taken delight in her. By bowing my ear a little, I have received her. My whole being was stirred as I learned about her. Glory be to God who has given me wisdom. Some 2,000 years later, on July 2nd, 1960, on the Feast of the Visitation, Thomas Merton lay asleep in a hospital bed in Louisville, Kentucky, when he was awakened by the voice of a nurse. At 5.30, as I was dreaming, in a very quiet hospital, the soft voice of the nurse awoke me gently from my dream. And it was like awakening for the first time from all the dreams of my life, as if the Blessed Virgin herself, as if wisdom had awakened me. We do not hear the soft voice, the gentle voice, the feminine voice, the voice of the mother. Yet she speaks everywhere and in everything. Wisdom cries out in the marketplace. If anyone is little, let him come to me. It wasn't the first time Merton had encountered her, nor would it be the last. 
By bowing his ear a little, Merton would awaken to her again and again, his whole being stirred as he was touched by her presence. In the scriptures, in strangers passing by on a street corner, in the splendor of the natural world. And like Ben Sirah, thanks be to God, Merton would put the joy of his discovery into words and images so that others might also bow the ear of their hearts and be comforted by her presence. Nowhere did Merton do so more beautifully than in his wondrous prose poem, Hagia Sophia, now weaving a complex of biblical and patristic archetypes into his gentle awakening by the nurse. There is in all visible things an invisible fecundity, a dimmed light, a meek namelessness, a hidden wholeness. This mysterious unity and integrity is wisdom, the mother of all, natura naturans. O blessed silent one who speaks everywhere. We do not hear the soft voice, the gentle voice, the merciful and feminine, yet she is the candor of God's light, the expression of his simplicity. We do not hear the uncomplaining pardon that bows down the innocent visages of flowers to the dewy earth. We do not see the child who is prisoner in all the people and who says nothing. When I was doing my doctoral work at Notre Dame, just across the road, and first puzzling over the appearance of Wisdom Sophia in Merton's writings, and as it turns out, uh, in his drawings, which Paul Pearson, I'll never forget the day he showed me uh, files and files of Merton's drawings. I was intrigued to be sure, but I don't mind saying I was a little disconcerted. Who is this Sophia? that Merton keeps talking about. She simply didn't fit into my predetermined Western Catholic theological categories. The question itself would become the doorway into a long journey of discovery, like the key to the locked room of a mansion that nobody has told you about. Yet I find, found that once you linger inside those locked rooms for a while, she stays with you. And you begin, as Merton did, to trust this ancient remembrance of God in a feminine key. You begin to trust your own experience. You cannot hear, you cannot unhear what you have heard, unsee what you have seen, unfeel what you felt. Yet look away for a moment, or a year or 10 years, and she's gone. Wisdom Sophia, as one scholar describes her, is like the lilac fairy flitting around the edges of the canon, difficult to pin down, explain, or talk about. And that's why I feel the organizing theme of this conference is such an auspicious one, an unusual one, which Merton himself would have loved. It is no small gift to be touched by God in a new way, an unexpected way through another person's guidance. For me, as I know for many of you, that trustworthy guide into the tradition, into those locked rooms in the mansion, 
was and still is Thomas Merton. She appears in the Book of Wisdom as a breath of the power of God and a pure emanation of the glory of the God, the glory of the Almighty, a kind of veil joining heaven and earth and animating all life with the power of God. In Proverbs 8, uh, the text that probably most haunted Merton's religious imagination, she appears as a wisdom child, active in fashioning all that exists at play before God at the dawn of creation. In the New Testament, Jesus is often portrayed as wisdom incarnate. Just as Ben Sirah advises, put your neck under her yoke and let your souls receive instruction, so does Jesus invite his followers, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Just as wisdom experiences rejection, so too does Jesus. His invitation, like hers, is not coercive in any way. Some will accept, many will not. Indeed, it is our capacity to hear and respond in freedom that is emphasized in the wisdom tradition. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it, says Jesus in Luke's gospel. The Orthodox and Catholic devotional tradition looks to Mary, the mother of Jesus, as the embodiment of creaturely wisdom, Sophia. Mary's seat of wisdom is one of her titles. Above all for her courageous yes, her fiat, her consent, as Merton writes, which opens the door of created nature, of time, of history, to the incarnation of God in the world. The 12th century Benedictine nun, mystic, musician, and doctor of the church, Hildegard of Bingen, composed hymns to Sophia in allegorical texts and visual illuminations. Perhaps it is not surprising that the artists and poets have been much more comfortable with wisdom Sophia than the philosophers and theologians. That Hildegard and Merton are both artists and theologians is a matter of significance, I think. Both poets of the presence of God. In an earlier session, the question was asked about form and the importance of form in rendering theological content. That's a very important question, I think, and it's not accidental that Merton, Dorothy Serla, Abraham Joshua Heschel, many, many more were writing their theology in a poetic idiom. And indeed, much like Hildegard, Merton at times evokes Sophia without using words at all, as in his mysterious ink drawing. Are you ready for the title? Christ unveils the meaning of the Old Testament. Yeah, it, I, that was my reaction uh, when I first saw it in the archives at, at Bellarmine. It just took my breath away. In the drawing, Merton has Jesus looking rather weather-worn and weary standing behind a seated young woman with vibrant dark eyes and flowing dark hair as he draws back a veil to reveal her face. 
there was a beautiful study of this image done by scholar Margaret Betts, trying to locate the date uh, of the of the image, and she shared it with a bunch of art art historians and scholars, etc. At the end of her beautiful essay, she writes um, that she, she describes this image as indicative of quote. Merton's intuitive grasp of a God more inclusive than the traditional patriarchal God, and like the God of the Psalms, all-encompassing. Can I hear the people say amen? <laughs> I thought that was just a, a perfect summation uh, of, of this image and of this tradition that surfaces in so many of, of Merton's writings. The Hebrew Bible scholar, many of you will know Walter Brueggemann, one of our great Old Testament scholars, describes Wisdom Sophia as ancient Israel's counter-testimony to a different way of experiencing the living God. Brueggemann distinguishes Israel's, Israel's core testimony in the Bible, where God is, quote, highly visible, evoking terror in the enemy and praise in the beneficiaries of God's action. He distinguishes that testimony, the primary testimony, from what he calls Israel's counter-testimony, as voiced in the wisdom tradition, where God's presence is felt in three facets, says Brueggemann, hiddenness, ambiguity, and negativity. At moments of profound uncertainty and crisis, wisdom cries out from the crossroads, giving reassurance, especially to the little, to the poor, to the forgotten ones. Her presence sustains and accompanies her children in exile. The sophiological impulse, if I could use that technical term, sophiology, referring back to the Russian and Eastern Orthodox tradition, this tradition attaches very large meanings to very small signs, realities that we habitually, sometimes tragically, overlook. How often, Merton, Merton might ask us, how often do we not see the child who is prisoner in all the people, who is prisoner in each of us, and who says nothing? Nowhere have I seen this sociological impulse, the reclaiming of the divine in what appear to be God-forsaken places practiced with greater beauty and more piercing anguish than in Jewish feminist theologians, uh, Melissa Raphael, her study, The Female Face of God in Auschwitz. I hesitate to even attempt to describe her work, which mines the memoirs of Jewish women from the Nazi death camps to make the case for the divine presence, the inbreaking of the divine, in women's acts of bodily care for one another. The simplest gestures of compassion, Raphael argues, washing the body of another woman or another woman's child, sharing a crust of bread, brushing one another's hair to keep the lice at bay. These were acts of holy resistance, holy sacred in their care for the person, she says. To ask the question of God's presence in the midst of utter deprivation, says Raphael, is not only to ask, quote, how was God made present to us, 
but also and inseparably from that, how did we make ourselves present to God? For Raphael, the love reflected between the lines of women's stories in the camps. She's always reading between the lines of these narratives, hearing, listening for the music, the hidden in the midst of these horrific conditions. The love reflected between the lines of women's stories in the camps is, quote, the love of a mother God, known to the tradition as the Shekinah. Israel's God, she says, is an accompanying God whose face or presence as Shekinah, she who dwells among us, goes with Israel in mourning into her deepest exile, even if Israel cannot see her in the terrible crush, end quote. By contrast, says Raphael, quote, the father God, the monarchical man of war, was of little or no consolation or relevance to the women whose memoirs form the ground of her study. Like very few writers or theologians that I have read, Raphael forces her reader to think deeply about the divine image in whose image we profess to be made. Which God are we really talking about? And when no person or no, no human being was capable of a kind or a compassionate word amidst the degradation of the camps, she writes, inanimate objects could take on the functions of divine presence for women. She recounts Victor Frankl's story of a girl who told him as she lay dying that a bare chestnut tree was the only friend she, she had in her loneliness and that she often talked to it. When Frankel asked the girl if the tree replied, she answered, it said to me, I am here, I am here. I am life, eternal life. Even the face of the moon, as one woman wrote from Auschwitz, even the face of the moon looking through her cell window could embody the unfailing presence of the divine mother whose smooth round face, she wrote, is always turned towards us, even if it is darkened by shadow and cloud. Here was a power, says Raphael, that, quote, did not redeem by mighty intervention, but by silent relational presence and care. Now, reading this book, right, the thought that God was there may fill us with a certain awe and trembling. Nevertheless, insists Raphael, there are the largest meanings to be discovered in the very smallest of signs, even in Auschwitz, perhaps especially in Auschwitz. All of this is to say that the question, who is she, or she who is, to borrow Elizabeth Johnson's classic formulation, is inseparable from the question of how we make ourselves present to God, to one another, and to the natural world, and how we do not. Consider that wisdom Sophia broke into Merton's consciousness in an era that he called a season of fury, a century that witnessed two devastating world wars, the atomic bomb, 
and global industrialization at a massive scale, all devastations wrought not only on entire human populations, we mustn't forget, but also on the earth, our common home. The machinery of war and commerce, the father god, the monarchical man of war, makes no distinction between persons and the planet. All are materials to be used and conquered and fracked. In other words, the question of God always turns back upon us. Are we awake to her call? Are we bowing the ears of our hearts just a little? In her Madaleva lecture here, right here at St. Mary's College in 1986, a text later published as Women in the Word, the Gender of God and the Spirituality of Women, the renowned biblical scholar Sandra Schneiders suggests that just as images of the self and the world can be healed, quote, so can the God image. It cannot be healed, however, by rational intervention alone. That is an astonishing insight, very important. And I think one that theologians ought to pay close attention to. She writes, if it is the imagination which governs our experience of God and further that our religious and social imaginaries cry out for the healing of patriarchy, is not the remembrance of Sophia the most promising resource in the tradition for doing so. What the believing community sorely needs, Schneider's concludes, is a therapy of the religious imagination. Another scholar and friend of Father Bill and my, my, mine and Kevin and others who are here, John Dodosky from uh, the Toronto School of Theology, describes her absence in the West as a gaping wound in the tradition. It's not a question of, of an either or of elevating the mother at the expense of the father, but of balance of wholeness, of, of, of bringing wholeness to our picture of the divine. I think that's how I read in any case Schneider's um, suggestion that we need a healing, a therapy of the religious imagination. Unlock that forbidden wing in the mansion. Let her story be told. Let us pray with the lilac fairy. Let us introduce her to our children. As I was reading, uh, writing, preparing this address just uh, a few weeks ago, the collapse of a major dam amid relentless shelling in southern Ukraine was sparking global fears of an ecological catastrophe with President President Zelensky describing the situation, quote, as an, as an environmental bomb of mass destruction. Wildfires burned across several Canadian provinces, blanketing our northern U.S. cities under a haze of dangerous particulate smoke, while communities across the West, in Colorado, where I'm from, wrestle with how to keep the ancient Colorado River alive a river stressed by overuse and drought to keep it from disappearing in our lifetimes. Meanwhile, anybody recognize this advertisement? 
Apple Incorporated released its much anticipated headset called Vision Pro, which retailing at a mere $3,500 promises to dissolve the boundaries between virtual and augmented reality while immersing its, wear, its wearer in real, real world settings. And this as educators and parents around the country sound the alarm about perpetual screen exposure and cell phone addiction among teenagers and the US Surgeon General who recently warned that social media carries quote, a profound risk of harm to the mental health and well-being of children and adolescents. And speaking of the well-being of our children, how many of your kids are now practicing live shooter drills in their classrooms? Um, you know, whether literally suffering a live shooter situation or not, certainly that must be a traumatic, traumatic experience for our kids and for our teachers. It reminds me of, of the picture of kids hiding under their desks during the nuclear threat in the early 1960s. But somehow feel this feels a bit more, I don't know, random and terrifying that, that, that these places that are meant to be havens to nurture, right? Um, have become potential targets. Why does Thomas Merton remain such a compelling teacher of wisdom for our time? Again, I want to quote biblical scholar Walter Brueggemann. He writes, speech about hope cannot be explanatory and scientifically argumentative. Rather, it must be lyrical in the sense that it touches the hopeless person at many different points. More than that, however, speech about hope must be primarily theological, which is to say that it must be in the language of a covenant between a personal God and a community. Promise, says Brueggemann, belongs to the world of trusting speech and faithful listening. Hope, he concludes, must be told in image, in figure, in palm, in vision. It must be told sideways, told as one who dwells with the others in the abyss. Merton, I want to suggest, dwells with us in the abyss. And from this place, and from this place, he offers us an image, a figure, a poem, a theological vision that touches our hopelessness at many different points. It is wisdom teachers like Hildegard and Merton, Melissa Raphael and Ben Sirah, and surely like Jesus of Nazareth, who urge us to bow the ear of our hearts, to look deeply and listen again to the skies and the trees, to the creatures of the sea and the suffering earth, and above all, to our suffering neighbor. The woman who puts her last coin in the temple collection, the Samaritan who crosses the road when others pass by, the one who notices. Pope Francis, who on bended knee washes the feet of a young Muslim refugee woman. The Sioux Indians of Standing Rock who put their bodies in front of earth movers and welcomed thousands of young pro protesters 
from around the country in a movement to protect the land and water that is as deeply spiritual as it is existential. To think prophetically in our times, to be a prophetic community, is to pray theologically for a word of hope where things look hopeless, for a renewed sense of presence where God feels absent, for a memory of healing and liberation where relationships seem broken or coercive beyond repair. This remembering of our deepest identity in God, I believe, is what Merton discovered in the music of the wisdom tradition. Something new and wordlessly ancient ever waits to be born into the world. Something beautiful in the very flesh, the very flesh and spirit of our lives. But can we believe it? For here is an unspeakable secret. Paradise is all around us and we do not understand. It is wide open. The sword is taken away but we do not know it. We are off one to his farm and another to his merchandise. Lights on, clocks ticking, thermostats working, stoves cooking, electric shavers filling radios with static. Wisdom, cries the Don Deacon, but we do not attend. Thank you. <laughs>